The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. From verse 4 through 7, and this is what Paul wrote. He says, but when the fullness of time came, when it finally came, the fullness of time, that crucial moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because, by the way, being under the law, the horrible thing about being under the law was being under the condemnation of the law. Uh, what would it be like if the, if the highway patrol had a camera in your car and every time you went five miles over the speed limit, they would just send you a ticket? What if they knew exactly the way that you drive and do other things and they could immediately see when you violated the law, the letter of the law? Well, imagine if you're living in a context as the, as the people of Israel were in the Holy Land in the promised land, where God gave them a law to follow, and God is omniscient. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives. And so to live under the law was to live under this terror of judgment. Now, there are only 10 commandments, but there are about 600 commandments in the law. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, we're talking about a summary of the Mosaic Law. But the Mosaic Law covered everything in life. It covered everything about you, everything that you did. God gave them a rule of life to follow. And so he says he sent his son into the world to redeem those who were under the law, to set them free, to pay the ransom price to set them free, that we might receive adoption as sons, going from being a slave, that's the picture that's given under the law to being a son in the household of God. I know some of you have been exposed to a certain kind of teaching and raising children that you should have about 150 rules and post them on the refrigerator and give the penalty next to them exactly what's going to happen to you. I've often wondered what that did to a kid's psyche, <laughs> you know, as they, as they grew up in a household where there was a rule for everything. And there was a punishment for everything. Well, it says here that God sent his son into the world to redeem us from this slavery and to, instead, give us adoption as sons, which means we have become, through faith in Christ, we've become sons of God. The big deal about being a son of God, and it's true both women who come to faith in Christ as well as men, but it's called sons because it has to do with your standing in the family, that you are an heir a joint heir of Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what you inherited, all you have to do is read the Bible a little bit and you find out that the believer is going to inherit everything, including all creation. And so Jesus came to set us free. Now, Paul had lived under the law. I've never lived under the Mosaic law, and neither have you. Well, perhaps you have if you've been in certain circles, but living under the Mosaic law was something that Paul felt it was a huge weight that was lifted when he was set free from that through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 6, because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We have here in this passage 
of this wonderful good news about God's perfect timing. That he sent his son at just the right time. All of us live with deadlines of one kind or another, and we know what it's like to forget, or maybe you don't, I certainly do, forget about a deadline. I got a summons the other day to serve on a federal jury in San Francisco. And it was coming up at just the time I needed to be free because I'm teaching at the seminary. So I was supposed to report at this certain day, and it may take up to two weeks or two months or six months. So I filled everything out, and it said you could have a postponement. If you request it, they'll automatically give you a six-month postponement. But there was no place on the, on the thing to, to put that. So I filled it all out, and they said, thank you very much, and we'll call you and let you know when you have to come serve. And then I wrote back the uh, email back, and I said, I thought we could uh, request a postponement. And this nice lady sent me a, an email and said, you can, just return, give me a return email asking for a six-month po- postponement, and tell us the months that would be best for you. And so I did. So I get to serve in July when school's out. And it's real hot. And I can go to San Francisco where it's real cool. Uh, but we, we know how to live. And I have to put that on my calendar. You know what I mean? Because it's easy to forget these dates, isn't it? And the exact time. So we work with, we know what it's like to work with deadlines. And sometimes we get frustrated with God. We wonder if God's forgotten his promise to us. Has he forgotten that he made me promises? You know, there are incredible promises in the word of God to those who come to faith in Christ. Incredible promises. And sometimes I've had believers ask me, I don't understand. I thought God said he would do this and look at what's going on in my life. The world today, it's estimated there are 7.5 billion people in the world. And 2.4 billion identify as Christian. So that's about a third of the world's population identify as Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, quoting from the Old Testament, it says, Now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. The period of time from the, from the ascension of Jesus Christ until his return, from the time he went up back to the Father until the time he comes down, and the angels told the disciples, he's going to return in just the same way. He's going to come back. And in this period of time, it's been 2,000 years now, in this period of time is the day of salvation. It's a day in which the gospel goes out, and whoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And what's happening in the world today is really amazing. China, the church in China is the most persecuted church in the world. They have been historically. And... um, there, there was about 5,000 Christians after World War II, and we were kicked out of the country. There was no Christian missionaries that could go into China for a long period of time. When they finally got back in, there were 50 million. It's estimated that this highly persecuted group, by the year 2030, is going to be made up of 250 million Christians. 250 million. Isn't that amazing? Um, more, there's more Iranians who have come, become Christians in the last 20 years than the previous 13 centuries. Think of that. More Christians today, more Iranian Christians today than ever before. Australia and New Zealand churches are cons- consistently seeing hundreds of people come to faith in Christ over a year's time. That's amazing. There's a song, Robin Mark, who's an Irishman, 
He was a part of uh, the Belfast Revival. He's a worship leader, but he was there when this was going on, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming to faith in Christ. Their lives changed. Whole communities changed. And he wrote this song. These are the days of Elijah. I'm sure you've heard it on the radio or, or somewhere. But listen to the words. What he was saying was, wow, it's like Jesus is about to come. What's going on here? There's so many people turning to Christ. And this is the words of the song. These are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. And these are the days of your servant Moses' righteousness being restored. These are the days of great trials, of famine and darkness and sword. Still we are the voice of the de- in the desert crying, prepare you the way of the Lord. Say, behold, he comes, riding on the cloud, shining like the sun at the, at the trumpet's call. Lift your voice. It's the year of Jubilee. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. You know what the year of Jubilee is, don't you? That's the year they do away with all debt under the law, under the Mosaic law. They would do away with all debt. Wouldn't that be great? All debt would be gone. All land that had been sold because God gave them the land and he gave each family a portion of the land. And so if they sold off their land, they, the, the buyer could only have it for a certain period of time until the year of Jubilee, and then it would have to return to the owner. And the year of Jubilee then is used to picture the coming of Jesus Christ. He's coming back for his people. And he goes on and he says, and these are the days of Ezekiel, the dry bones becoming his flesh. If you've read the Old Testament, you might be familiar with that picture of these dry bones in the valley of dry bones. And, and Ezekiel asked the Lord, can these bones live? And he brought them back to life and he put flesh on them and he breathed life into them. And it's a picture of the new birth. When we were spiritually dead, spiritual death doesn't mean you lay in bed all day. Spiritual death means that you're dead to God. God is out of the picture for you. You are dead to God. But what happens is when God intervenes in your life, when he opens your eyes to the glory of who Christ is and you believe on Christ, you become alive to God. And all of a sudden, he's the greatest reality in all of life. And the Bible becomes like a window. Every time you open it, you see Jesus. It isn't just you read a bunch of stuff. Now, you heard the Bible read this morning in the King James Version. And, and some people, that's what, they think that uh, reading the Bible would be the most boring thing in the world. But what it is, when your heart has been changed by the Spirit of God and you see Christ, it is like looking through a picture window and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing, there is nothing in all of life that can impact you like that. That's what the new birth is all about. It's the opening of the eyes. God says, let light shine in darkness. And all of a sudden, your eyes are open and you see who Christ is. And then you say things like, you know what? I was reading this and all of a sudden I knew that this is exactly who Jesus is. This is really the truth. That's the wonderful thing about the new birth. It actually gives you new life, new life. Now, I want you to, I would like to drive home something, just a simple thing, and that is that, it's not a simple thing, but it's a glorious truth, is that is God is never late. I'm sure that some of you have some things going on in your life now, and you're wondering, when is God going to intervene? When is he going to intervene? This, just recently, over the last couple of months, R.C. Sproul passed away. 
and he'd been sick for some time. He had had congestive heart failure and had a, had had a stroke and things and his health wasn't good, but he's still traveling all over the country. R.C. Sproul would never fly in an airplane. He was afraid of flying. If you don't know who R.C. Sproul is, um, shame on you. <laughs> he's, just, he's a very well-known Bible teacher, theologian. And he used to travel everywhere he went. He spoke all over this country and around the world at different times, but he would always take a train when he traveled in the United States. And guess what happened? He was in a train wreck. He actually experienced a train crash, but he still wouldn't fly until Jesus flew him home. And that's exactly what happened. And he wrote a book back, it's probably in the late 70s, he wrote a book called surprised by suffering. It was all about what it's like when you go through times of great suffering and bad health and things like that. And, and he wrote this book, and the theology of it is wonderful. If you read the book, if you know someone who's having a real difficult time with suffering, get him this book, Surprised with Suffering. And uh, it, it is a great book of encouragement because God is in control of our suffering. I remember hearing a guy who was a paraplegic. That is, he couldn't move any thing in his body he 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 was laying in a bed and they were interviewing him you know what he said he said the greatest comfort i have in all of life is the fact that god is sovereign what that means is god is in control he said if i thought this was an accident if i thought this was just a happenstance that i was born in this condition i would be so depressed but i'm not because i know god is sovereign and i'm in the hands of god And this brings me great comfort. Why did he believe that? He read the Bible. That's what the Bible says. (laughs) The Bible says that God is sovereign. And guess what? You're not in control and I'm not in control. God is in control. And all of us who are believers would say to you, you know what? When I came to faith in Christ, it was totally God that brought that about. I had no plan. It wasn't like I was going to turn my life around. I was going to get things right. It's just God came in a powerful way through certain circumstances. I heard the gospel. I knew it was true, and I put my trust in Christ, and he changed my life. And he gave me hope, and he gave me life. Well, God is always on time. Whatever you're going through, whatever thing isn't happening that you wish would happen or whatever thing hasn't happened that you want to happen, God is in control and he's always on time. One of the worst things in the world is when you ask for something and you get it and then you realize that was a bad request. (laughs) I should have never asked for that. It's it's like Elijah when, I've told you this story before, when he's under the broom tree and he he asked God to kill him because he was a failure, he felt. And he said, just take my life. And he pled with him to do this. But God didn't answer his prayer. What God did was he sent an angel to feed him and to give him some rest. And then he took him up on a mountain and he let him hear the voice of God in a gentle, quiet whispering. And it convinced him that he could trust this God. He didn't have to control this God. He could trust the God of the universe. And that's what he did. Well, there's an amazing statement here in Galatians 4, and that is, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. That's what we're celebrating with Christmas tomorrow. 
is God sent his son at the fullness of time. There was one time in history when all the things that were perfectly in line with the first coming of Jesus came together, God brought them together, or as the writer of Hebrews calls it, it was at the consummation of the ages. This is a really powerful word. Suntelii was translated consummation means, well, some of you are old enough to remember when we had, I don't know if they do this still, but when they had combination locks on your, your lockers at school, you remember the last click? When you got it right and the last click, that's what this word means. It means that the, the, the most important event in all of history, the thing that pulls everything together, took place in the fullness of time when God sent his son into the world. He sent his son forth. One time in history. This is very assuring to realize that God's timing is perfect. And he continues to work in our lives at just the right time. Today, it may be the perf- God's perfect time in your life to work in some special way. Maybe uh, you're going to solve, he's going to open your eyes to the solution to the problem you're facing. Or maybe he's going to give you the impossible request you've been praying for. God loves to answer impossible prayer requests. <laughs> they're, they're the best kind to pray. After all, if you can do it yourself, go ahead. But if you need God to do something that you can't do and nobody else can do, he loves to answer those kinds of prayers. Maybe God's going to tell you that now is the time for you to commit your life to him. It's been long enough for you to be outside of his care and his family because he created you for fellowship with him. So our text today helps us see just how perfectly God works his will. And I'd like to encourage you that you... If you turn to Christ, it'll be just at the right time, just at the proper moment when he turns you towards him and you receive life from him. There's four important truths that are revealed in this passage. The first is preparation, when the fullness of time came. These are wonderful words because it's what gives us hope that God works according to his plan and his purpose. Um... There's no future without God, but God has a plan. And in fact, he's revealed that plan to us, certain aspects of it, and we experience it. We were lost and without hope and without God. That was the condition of the entire human race. Lost and without hope, without God. And here's why. Because God created you to have fellowship with him. And because of the fall, humanity was alienated from God. There was this vast separation. In fact, the idea of having a relationship with God sounds odd to us in our fallen state. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction to the heart we realize that, yes, I desperately need a relationship with the God who created me for himself. God has a plan. And he tells us, I don't know when it was that each of you came to faith in Christ, And I can barely remember when I did, but I do remember. I do remember when my eyes were open to the glory of Christ. I wasn't quite, I I think I was in junior high school. And I still remember the light went on. And I realized that he really is who this Bible says that he is. And when I trusted him, I entered into this life of fellowship with God. A little teenager able to talk to the God of the universe and know that he hears him. 
You see, that's what God does. He brings you into this relationship with him. So in the fullness of time, he sent his son to provide this glorious work of bringing you into relationship with him. Then he goes on, so God sent his son. The word that he uses for send is apostello, which is a word, we get our word apostle from. It means to be sent on a mission. Have you ever been sent on a mission? I was sent on a mission yesterday. My wife sent me to the store to buy some stuff for, for Christmas Eve, and I went down to the store and walked through Safeway and found every item. All five of them was amazing. <clears throat> Paid for them, brought them home, and gave them to her. Mission accomplished. But I've been sent on a mission. Well, he says here the word that he uses for sending his son is he sent his son on a mission. But then a little later in the verse, he says, because we're sons of God when we put faith in Christ, he sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. And the spirit calls out, Abba, Father. Both of them were sent by God. There's just multitudes of fulfilled prophecy about Jesus, about the situation in which he was born who his mother was going to be. The city, 700 years before the birth of Christ, it was prophesied, Micah prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. 700 years before. Imagine that. If, if, you've, if you've read the New Testament, I don't know if you would remember, but there's a place in there where somebody says he couldn't be the Messiah because he was born in Nazareth. And the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, the fact was he was born in Bethlehem. But the, his folks took him to Egypt because the king was threatening to kill every child under two years old. And so they whisked him away and went down to Egypt. And then they came back. When they came back, instead of moving back to Bethlehem, which they moved instead to Nazareth. And he grew up in Nazareth. But 700 years before he was born, it was prophesied exactly where he was coming, where he was going to be born. There was spiritual preparation for his coming. For example, in the Old Testament, God was dealing with the chosen people, Israel, as a nation. And he promised them that a Messiah would come through them, that they would be the means through which the Messiah would come into the world. That's why Israel is so important to Christians. It's because that's where Jesus was born. That's where he came into this world. But the problem with Israel, they were always straying from God. They refused to worship him. They were idolaters. They worshiped other gods. So over and over again, God judged them for their idolatry. And finally, in this judgment, he put them into captivity, Babylonian captivity. Now, when they were taken into Babylonian captivity, the most horrible thing about it was they were taken away from the temple in Jerusalem, where God dwelt among his people. And so here they are in Babylonian captivity. And they found out, they learned that idolatry was a total loser. Go read Isaiah 46 sometime and see what it would be like to worship idols and trust idols to protect you and to provide for you. That's what they learned. The other thing that happened during this period of time was the Old Testament was completed. It came together and it promised that the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, would come and be born in Bethlehem. And it told all about him, the, the issues, the, ins, the situations of his life and so forth. Not only that, while they were in Babylonian captivity, they, they established what's called a synagogue. 
synagogue uh, didn't exist before that because people went to the temple to worship. But when they were taken off of, out of Israel and sent down into Babylon, where there was no, the temple wasn't there, it was up in Jerusalem. And so they began to meet together like we're meeting here. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ patterns its meetings after the synagogue where Christians met. And this is really, uh, this was something that God helped them to understand why it was so important for them to come together and hear the word and to share their lives with each other, to sing praises to God, to worship together. And so it became the natural pattern for the church as we meet. There, there's one body of Christ and you have these Christians that make up the body of Christ. Something like 2.5 billion they meet in little groups like this all over the world. Some of them meet in groups of 12 and 15. Some meet in groups of 5,000. But what they are is they're local churches where Christians get together. And that is patterned after the synagogue, which was developed during this period of time. So that when Jesus came, it would be a natural progression. There was also cultural preparation for his coming. In 350 B.C., Alexander the Great, who was the son of a Macedonian king, King Philip, conquered the entire world in 12 years. Now, this guy uh, truly was an effective warrior. And so the world became Greek in its culture, in its language, its philosophy, its art, and all those things. Everybody in the world could... Just about everybody in the world, in all the major sections of the world, people could speak Greek. They could understand Greek. This was how the gospel went out. This is why the New Testament is written in Greek. It's called Koine Greek, common Greek. It was a common Greek that people spoke every day. God caused that to happen before Jesus came so that the message about Christ would go out to the whole world. And it's why preachers sometimes pronounce Greek words to impress you that they've been to seminary. And it's because the New Testament was written in Greek. And so we say things like anthropos and, and uh, Christos and things like that. But it's just because the New Testament was written in Greek. And what was so important about that is the gospel goes out to the whole world and people preach the gospel in Greek. And other, the people who heard them understood what they were saying. Have you ever spoke to a group of people and they didn't understand your language? It's tough. I've spoken through an interpreter. I had an interpreter in Mexico. When I went down there a few times and I had a friend there that translated for me. I'm, not, I'm kind of a bland preacher. You can tell there's not a whole lot of emotion. So if I'm really calm. And this guy, when he preached, when he would translate what I said, it was as fiery as all get out. I thought, Wow. <laughs> This is, this, this is a lot better than I do. But you see, we don't have to, they didn't have to do that in the first century. They could preach the gospel in the language of the people because it was a language of the whole civilized world. There was also, so, so you see what I mean by that. The, the stage was set for the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. So anyway, was, there was a political preparation for his coming. By the time Christ had come, the Romans had conquered the world. They were the Roman Empire. There was free travel. You could go anywhere you wanted. The road system was amazing. They didn't have GPS, but they had an incredible road system. And so you could walk on a really nice road. <laughs> and you could go everywhere. So in the book of Acts, for example, you hear of Paul 
and Apollos and Paul and, and Silas and Paul and Barnabas going to all kinds of places to take the gospel because there was free travel. Now, that's no big deal to you. You live in the United States. You can travel from California to New York. Yeah, it's going to cost you a lot of money and gas, but you can do that. You're free to do that. You're free to travel. But this was huge in the first century. There was the Pax Romana, which means a peace in Rome, and it just meant that there was peace in the world because Rome was in control with a heavy hand. And so it was possible to go from one country to another. And then God puts a man on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. But before that, he puts another man on a throne that would allow the message of this Messiah to go out. Daniel 4.32 says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. I, I, I'm really, this is really shaky for me to say this, but the reason Donald Trump is a president is because it was a part of God's plan. That's all. But if, if it had been Hillary Clinton, it would have still been because of God's plan. In fact, the, God, the word says that. He says sometimes he sets up the basest of men, which means the lowliest, the worst, and he takes them down. He's in control. And so there was a man on the throne, Caesar Augustus, who was in the seat of power. Little did he know that when he called for a census of all the people in Israel to go to their city of origin and to be counted, that this would bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where Jesus was going to be born. Because of this edict that he thought was totally his idea, God sets up the birth of Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of Micah in the Old Testament that he would be born in Bethlehem. Look at the wisdom of God in sending Jesus at just the right time. If he could do that for the world, what can he do for you? I love it when I, when I see this happen. I've seen it happen many times when somebody is just, they're sweet, dumb, and happy. They're just, just moving along. Everything's fine. They're not even thinking about anything. And all of a sudden, God brings the gospel into their view and opens their eyes to the truth of it. And they turn to Christ. And all of a sudden, their life completely and radically changes. It wasn't planned by them. They didn't know it was coming. God, in his grace, worked it out. That's the wisdom of God. And you can rest in his timing. I know one of the things that happens in any local church, in our local church, we experience it, is we have parents and grandparents who are so worried about their children and their grandchildren. I'm one of those people. (laughs) And uh, it's something that's on your heart all the time. But the greatest source of comfort is God is on the throne and his timing is perfect. His timing is absolutely perfect. I've told you the testimony of a local pastor here who said he was a, an alcoholic by the time he was 14 and he was a drug dealer when he graduated from high school and he was a total mess. And he said, I knew I wasn't a Christian because Christians are good people because my parents were Christians. I knew good, you had to be a good person to be a Christian. And then God brings him, exposes him to the gospel in the word of God and he is totally blown away. Because when you start reading the Bible, you discover that God saves bad people. 
He saves people of every size, shape, and form. And he's a sovereign God. And if you ask any Christian in this room, what it was it that brought you to faith in Christ? If they thought clearly about it, they would have to say, it was God working sovereignly in the circumstances of life that brought me to the point where I heard the gospel at just the right time and I couldn't do anything else but believe the truth of this invitation that if I were to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I would be saved. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, if you, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the word of God. That's when a person comes into a living relationship with a living God. And so there's this incredible provision then, uh, not only preparation, but provision. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Those three statements, those three little clauses say something incredible about, about Jesus Christ. He was sent by the Father, and he is deity. This establishes the fact that, that Jesus has existed from all eternity because he has the same nature as his father. He is God. He is deity. And he was born of a woman. He's a real human being. He came into this world and, and was born of a virgin. That sounds so fantastic. And like, how can you possibly believe that? Because the Bible says it. And it explains it, why it was necessary. The only one who could save us was someone like us. You remember the book of Job? You know the book of Job? You've heard of the book of Job. In the book of Job, Job is suffering horribly. And his friends are telling him, you're suffering because you've done something wrong. How would you like friends like that? The reason you're suffering so horribly is because you've done something wrong. And Job's response was, wow, I wish there was somebody that could understand God and understand me. Because I know I have done nothing that would cause him to do this to me. So if he's doing it because he thinks I've done something horrible and he's judging me, then he doesn't understand me. And so he prays and he says, oh, oh that God would give, all oh, that I had a daysman, it's pronounced, uh, translated in the King James Version. It means mediator. You know what a mediator is? A mediator is somebody who understands both you and the person you're having the problem with. And they're going to try to bring you together. They can put their hand on both of you and bring you together. And we're told in the New Testament that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. He's the mediator that the Father sent to bring us back into a relationship with him. So he's the son, truly God. He's born of a woman, truly man. And he's born under the law. He's truly righteous. In other words, he had to live under the commands of God. He was born into a a context in which he lived under the law of God. Listen to this. This is Hebrews 2. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are all their lives held, were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now that's been taken away from Satan, but you know what it's like to live in fear of death? Have you ever met somebody, ever known somebody that, that um, lives in constant fear of death? It's horrible. And he says their whole lives they were lived in the slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's seed. He's talking about humanity. He's talking about those who follow Abraham in faith. 
For this reason, he, has, he had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might have become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You read the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and you see him go through all of the weaknesses of a human being. He gets tired, he gets hungry, and yet he's the eternal son of God. And why would he come and do this? Why would he become one of us if he's God? Because he wanted to save us. And then the, the, the third thing he tells us is purpose. So that, that's a purpose clause, it's called. So that, for this purpose, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Uh, sometimes that, that little expression, under the law, fools us. And they, so he only came to save the Jews. No, because he explains that even though the Jews were under the Mosaic law, we were under the, the primary principles of the world, the ABCs of the world, what the world says is right and wrong. Now that changes with every culture. But he came to free us, to, to bring us into a relationship with him so that we can know for absolute, with absolute certainty that we are right with God. That we are right with God. That's what salvation brings. It brings us absolute confidence that I am right with God. And it's because of Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. He came to redeem us, to buy us out of slavery. He paid the ransom price. He was the ransom price. And so he set us free. Now, I mentioned this before. It's, it, that doesn't compute with us quite as much. But in the Roman Empire, half the population were slaves, meaning that they, somebody owned them. They didn't, have, they didn't have free citizenship. They were under the rule of somebody else. You might have a doctor as one of your slaves. That would be convenient, wouldn't it? But half the population didn't have freedom. And the only way they could get it is if somebody was willing or gave them the money to pay the ransom price to set them free from this slavery. And so Jesus, God uses this as a picture of what Christ has done. He's come and paid the ransom price to set us free from the coming judgment and from the power of sin and the fear of death. And then secondly, it says he also came to adopt us. Redemption emphasizes our deliverance from from sin. Adoption speaks of our exalted position before God. We are sons of God. Who do you think you are? You ever have somebody say that to you? Just who do you think you are? Well, here's who every believer is. He's the son of God. He's a joint heir with Jesus Christ. He's right with God. He came to adopt us, and the Holy Spirit was given to us so that we would feel in the deepest part of our being that God is our Father. If you're not a Christian and you've heard Christians pray before and you hear them, they actually address God, the God of the universe. They say, they claim they believe in this God who created everything, and they address him as Father. What kind of a deal is this? In fact, he told us to use the term Abba, which isn't exactly Daddy, but it's something like that. I was in a youth, I was teaching a a youth meeting one time years ago in Pinal at somebody's house and um, before I spoke they, he had the kids pray and different ones prayed and this one girl when she prayed she says dear daddy in heaven and I thought it sounded so odd 
But then I realized, you know what? It does sound odd, but the fact is that's what Abba Father implies. He is your dear father, that he actually wants to hear you. I got a, a granddaughter and a great-granddaughter and a great-granddaughter sitting over there. They can talk to me anytime, anytime they want to, free access. And that's how it is with God and his children. We have free access to God as believers because we have been adopted. We have been made sons of God. So now we have this inheritance. There's two things here that I want to, I just want to emphasize the privileges. Because you're a son, God has sent forth his son, the the spirit of his son, uh, this is after the sending of his son. He sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son of God. Now, what this means is, is that we now, as Christians, as born-again believers, we can have joyful fellowship with the Father. You know what joyful fellowship is? You, you ever get with people you really enjoy being around? It's that kind of thing that gives you the deepest, most profound joy in the world to have fellowship with God now that you are a son of God and the Holy Spirit's in your heart producing in you this profound sense that God loves you, that he wants to see you. It's something to run into somebody that you know and you think there's going to be this warm welcome and they look at you like, who do you think you are? That's horrible, isn't it? God never does that. God is a welcoming God. He's a God who welcomes people who say, I want to know you. I don't understand all this, but I know I want, to want, I want to know you. Well, you are addressing a welcoming God who is provided for any and every human being, whoever will come to him, will enter into a relationship through faith in Christ with a God, a Father who loves them and will always be accessible. Joyful fellowship with the Father. Isn't that something that God sent forth his Son on a mission to get you and to bring you to the Father? I was reading this book that somebody loaned me the other day, and this guy's telling a story about it. He, he was a real character, and he, him and six friends decided they wanted to sail to Hawaii, and they got this old sailboat, and they kind of fixed it up, and they didn't have a navigator. One guy was going to be the navigator who had, was a navigator in the Navy, but he... It turned out he couldn't go with them because he got reassigned. So they sail from Southern California to the Hawaiian Islands. That, that's six days. And they got there in six days. And he said it was an absolute miracle because they really didn't know what they were doing. But they get there. And he says, we sail into, the, into Oahu. And he said, it's a part of a, this organization. They, they plan these trips. And so when you get there, they welcome you. He says, a huge loudspeaker. And they announced the arrival of the boat, the name of the boat, I forget what it was, but then they named every person on the boat, all six of these guys on the boat. And they said, we hope you had a nice trip. Welcome home. And this guy says, that's exactly what I expect to hear when I arrive in the presence of God. Welcome home. That's what you hear when you first put faith in Jesus Christ. You finally realize, I'm home. 
I'm back in a relationship with a God who created me for himself. Do you ever wonder why you're here? Why, what's, what are you, what's your life about? What are you, why do you exist? You exist for God. You exist to have a relationship with the God of the universe who has offered you relationship with him through his son. And that's exactly why he sent his son at just the right moment in history. In the fullness of times, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself so that you could come to have a relationship with a living God. So I would encourage you, God knows what he's doing. You may not know and understand all that is, I've said or all you've heard about what it means to become a Christian. Let me tell you, it's not signing a piece of paper. It's not walking an aisle. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who came into the world and did everything necessary for you to be made right with God and simply putting your trust in him. And I, I just want to encourage you, if you, want to, if you don't know who Jesus is, this is a picture window right here. This is the Bible. And when you start reading this Bible, you'll see Jesus. He's here. He's revealed to us in this book. Now, I, I just wanted to put this last thing up to encourage you believers. This is about the future. It's what we're waiting on. We anticipate. We live in anticipation of the coming of Christ, the one who died for us and brought us into this relationship. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, these are young believers. They've been Christians for maybe a few months. He writes to them, he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, all those who believed that have died, they're gonna rise first. And he says, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Isn't that a great promise? That's a great, great promise. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow on Christmas Day. But he's coming. And this fullness of time that brought him the first time, God's perfect timing is going to bring him back again. I'm pretty sure that he's going to come in my lifetime, so that gives you a lot of hope. Because he's got to come pretty soon. And I believe he's coming. He's coming to bring us into the presence of the Father. And the Father's going to say, welcome home. In Jude it says, when he presents you to the Father, right at the end of Jude it says he's going to do it with joy and singing. He's going to be singing out of joy that he's finally brought you in the presence of the Father who says to you, welcome home. I want to pray for you. If you don't know Christ, I would just love for you to say at least I'm going to find out who this Jesus is. Get a hold of a Bible. You can get a free Bible in a lot of places and simply start reading the Gospel of Mark. Find out who Jesus is and you'll discover he's exactly who I said he is. He's the eternal son of God who came into the world to save you, to bring you into a right relationship with the living God with whom you're going to live for all eternity. So let me pray for us. Father, we bow our hearts now. We know that your timing is perfect. This may be the day that you have chosen to bring some of these people sitting right here today into a living relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray for every believer here 
everyone who has come into a living relationship with you through Christ, that their hearts would be filled with joy at the incredible, incredible gift that you've given us. And you've given us this free access to you and freedom of speech before you. And so I pray, Father, today would be a day of great rejoicing. Tomorrow, as we celebrate Christmas with our families, I pray it'd be a day of great rejoicing because of what you've done. Not because we can get a great gift from one another, but because you've given the ultimate gift that is incomparable. We thank you so much for giving us a son who can save us to the uttermost. We thank you for it. We rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.